John chapter 20, we'll be in verses 1 through 18 uh, this morning. And just right off the bat, right off the bat, I want, I want to give you the big idea, the main idea of our passage this morning, is that the resurrection of Jesus, what we've been singing about all morning, this morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands as the most radical event in human history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ stands as the most radical event in human history. All of history hinges on this event by what Jesus has done in his resurrection. Now, if you are looking at Christianity, if you are trying to figure out if this is something that you want to be a part of or not, if you're trying to figure out if Jesus is worth your allegiance or following or not at all, my encouragement is not to start, as most people do, to see if Christianity fits with you, that fits within your worldview or your style or what you like or what you think. Start with the resurrection. Start with the resurrection. Here's what Tim Keller says about this. He says, if the resurrection happened, then there is a God who created you for himself, and ultimately, yes, Christianity fits you whether you can see it now or not. If he is real and risen, then just like Paul, even though he had none of the answers to any of his questions, you'll have to say, what would you have me do, Lord? The resurrection stands as the most radical event in human history, and what it offers is seemingly too good to be true. And here's what it offers, and what we're going to see today in our passage, that the resurrection offers sonship to the most high God. And this is incredible. We're going to get there. This is going to be at the end of our sermon today, that what this means to be sons of the Most High God, of what Christ has done. But before we get there, let me just give you this illustration. Say you got home today, you received the knock at the door, the mailman, he gave you a piece of certified mail. You opened it up, you had to sign for it to say that you received it, and it came from this lawyer's office, and as you're reading the letter, it tells you that you have received an inheritance from a long-lost Uncle Tim that lives in Croatia, you know, wherever it is. Now, you've never heard of long-lost Uncle Tim, and he's leaving you this massive inheritance that changes your life. What you're not going to do, although it's unbelievable, what you're not going to do is you're not going to throw it in the trash. You're at least going to look to see if it's real. You're at least going to see if this has any legitimacy at all. Even though you might not believe it, even though it might be too good to be true, you're at least going to investigate it. And that's what we see here in John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 18. I'm going to read for us our, our three points this morning. Before I read, our three points is that the resurrection of Jesus is believable, the resurrection of Jesus is personal, and the resurrection of Jesus is transformative. Now, I'm excited about it. Let's dive right in by reading the passage together. It says this. It looks like we got, I got the wrong slide on the screen. That's my fault. But if you have your Bible open, it'll be uh, verse 1 in chapter 20. It says this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, 
but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. As, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, when we open up this passage and we start reading this incredible resurrection account of what's happened with Jesus and Mary and Simon Peter and the disciple who Jesus loved, we get to this passage in verse six where it says, Simon Peter came in and he went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there. Now this word saw, it doesn't mean that he just saw them, they just didn't see it. The Greek behind this is therore, or it is and where we get our English word, rather, to theorize. So what Peter does is he goes into the, the tomb and he sees and he, and he reasons. He, has, he examines the evidence of the linen cloth lying there. Now there are a lot of theories that are surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus, that he really didn't die, that he just swooned on the cross, or that his body was stolen, that it was taken by his disciples. But here, in verse seven and six, you have Peter observing the evidence, why? Because Peter knows Jesus died on the cross. He knows that it was a gruesome death. His side was pierced with a spear. Then he also knows that his body's not here, but if it were grave robbers, if it were somebody that were coming to take Jesus' body, they would not leave the most valuable things in the tomb. They would not leave the burial clothes that have all the uh, spices wrapped up in it. There was incredible value in there. Moreover, if they were going to steal the spices or steal the body, why would they take the spices off of the body that covers the odor of the body? It doesn't make any sense. Next, I imagine Peter thinks, well, if it's the other disciples, if they've taken the body, why would they dishonor the Lord by uncovering his body and leaving the strips of linen and the cloth that covered his face there? And maybe most interestingly, the, the note where it says the face cloth was folded neatly beside where his burial clothes laid. I believe 
One reason that the gospel accounts of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection are so believable is because of their brutal honesty. They don't hold any punches. It's like you're experiencing this in real time with the disciples. You get all of their doubts, all of their fears, all of their questions, all of their accusations, and there is no sense that any of this story has been fabricated to make anyone try and look better. Have you ever wondered why everyone found it so unbelievable that Jesus rose from the dead? Think about it. Why are the disciples so bewildered that the tomb is empty and that Jesus rose? If you think about the gospel accounts in the gospel of Mark, three times in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, Jesus tells his disciples very plainly that he's going to die, that he's going to be delivered over to the chief priests, he's going to be killed, and on the third day, rise again. In John 12, after raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus rebukes Judas for his anointing, saying that she's preparing his body for burial. Jesus in John 16 tells his disciples that he's going away, and where he's going, you cannot go, but he will come back. Why is everyone so surprised at the resurrection of Jesus? You would think that Jesus has said this so plainly that they would just sit outside the tomb and wait, like, any day now, it's gonna be three days. He said it, he would rise, but they don't. They hide. Why? Well, scripture doesn't tell us why they hide, but I have a few thoughts on possibly why. There are many Jewish sects uh, that you might re- recognize. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, you have the Zealots. And each one of these, excluding the Sadducees, believed in a resurrection. You'll see in Matthew 22, where the Sadducees, they deny the resurrection, but the other three Jewish sects do believe in the resurrection. But here's what they believed about the resurrection. They believed that you died, and that the resurrection was on the last day, the judgment day, the day that was to come. They believed that it was a bodily resurrection, but they believed that all of this would happen simultaneously on the last day. If you remember in John chapter 11, where Martha is talking to Jesus, and Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again, and what does she say? She says, I know. I know that there's going to be a resurrection on the last day. So it's possible that it's just common Jewish thought. It's what they were raised with, it's what they believe, and so now the Messiah is dead, and his resurrection may be on the last day. Maybe that's one thought. Maybe that's why they didn't believe. I think possibly another reason that they, they didn't just expect Jesus to rise even though he had told them three times in the Gospel of Mark, that the crucifixion really happened. The crucifixion was so horrific, so bloody, so cruel, that in one sense it disorients you I mean, put yourselves in their shoes for a moment. The disciples, they've seen Jesus calm the wind and the waves. They've seen Jesus raise the dead, heal the sick. And so, yeah, Jesus is saying that he's going to die, that he's going to be handed over, but surely no power can overtake Jesus. And then it does. I'd I'd imagine, me, you'd, you'd leave bewildered. Sons, you might have this image of your father, especially I did when I was growing up, that my dad, man, he could do no wrong. He was the king, he was the man. Anything, (laughs) easy there, easy there, Bob. 
But anything that he did, like, I just was like, absolutely. I, I thought my dad could defeat anyone, do anything, be anything. And then one day when you grow up, you realize that your dad can't, that he's just human. And you move on. You grow from that. I imagine the disciples, though, in, in a similar sense, like a boy to their dad, like Jesus, man, he can do anything except defeat the power of Rome because they've just crushed him. And everything that they thought, everything that they believed is just now disorienting. They don't know what to do. Jesus was brutally tortured, mocked, misrepresented, scorned, humiliated, gruesomely murdered. We get this sense from the disciples, I mean, just right after this story, the Gospel of, uh, not the Gospel of Thomas, but the Gospel of John, Thomas, when he is approached by the disciples to say they've seen Jesus, what does Thomas say? I will not believe it until I see the holes in his hands. Why? Because there's no way that this man could rise from the dead after what he just saw. Now, one thing that I love about the accounts of Jesus and his, his resurrection, our first point, is that it is believable. Here's another reason why I believe it's so believable is that the account that we have, the first person to proclaim the gospel is a woman. Now early Christians would not have invented the story since there was such a low view of women in the first century Mediterranean society and that would raise issues of credibility. Richard Bauckham says, it, it provides evidence that in the Greco-Roman world, Educated men regarded women as gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasy and excessive in religious practices. I'm gonna read that again. They regarded women in the Greco-Roman world as gullible in religious matters and prone to superstitious fantasy. Now, that might sound harsh, but we can see the tenor, the tone, or the thought that this was maybe agreed upon by the disciples. Flip over to Luke chapter 24. No, it's on the screen right there. Luke chapter 24, verse 10. Now this is another Luke's account of the resurrection where the women have seen the angels that Jesus has been raised and this is what is said. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of G James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles that Jesus had been raised, that he was alive. But verse 11, what does it say? But to the apostles, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, idle tale is a very muted translation to me. Just looking up the word in the Greek, it means that they thought it was nonsense. They thought what the women were telling them was utter nonsense, that it was a message that was incoherent and unintelligible. They did not believe it. So if you were making up a story about the Messiah that was resurrected again, if you were fabricating this story, why would you start with someone who would not be believed? Why would you start with a woman? Why would you not start with, say, Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus off the cross and buried him? He would have been well known. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. Why would you not start with Jesus appearing to Nicodemus, a Pharisee who earlier talked to Jesus in John chapter three, and now he would be believed. No, you start with a woman. 
but not just any woman. You start with Mary. So our first point is that the resurrection is believable. We have eyewitnesses examining the evidence with brutal honesty, surprise, and confusion. Our next point is that the resurrection is personal. Now, still thinking about Mary. What do we know about Mary? We know that Mary has been radically saved by Jesus. When we see Mary in Luke chapter eight, we don't get a lot of details, but we know that she's had several demons in her, and Jesus miraculously saves her, and her life is forever changed. We don't know much about how these demons manifested in Mary's life, but we have seen in the other scriptures, like in Mark chapter five, what it looks like to be a demoniac, to be filled with demons. In Mark chapter five, this man's life is completely overtaken. He's a total outcast. He lives in caves. He wanders around half naked, babbling nonsense. And this is who Jesus chooses in his sovereignty, in his goodness and gentleness, to reveal himself to first. A former demoniac, a social outcast, Mary. But not just Mary, Mary, not just a woman. Consider Mary, she's a single woman. Jesus doesn't appear to Mary and her husband so that her husband can go and tell the disciples what has happened. He doesn't appear to a husband first. No, he just appears to single Mary, former demoniac Mary. She's not a pillar of the community. She, he doesn't appear to her because she's strong, but because she's weak. Not because she is brave, but because she is broken. Not because she has the answers, but because she is seeking Jesus. And he reveals himself to her. And here she is at the tomb, weeping, looking for Jesus. And how does Jesus reveal himself to her? He doesn't say, I told you, why didn't you believe? Why didn't you just have enough faith? Why did you doubt me? Why ever would you doubt me? Silly woman. No, does Jesus say that at all? No, the gospel message, the resurrection is personal. Because I just imagine with Jesus in the most gentle, loving, but still excited voice to say, Mary. And her eyes are opened. And she sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, alive. Now consider this. This should bring back in our minds John 16, or John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. What do they do? They listen to his voice. The shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep know his voice. Now there are many ways that we identify ourselves Married, single, divorced, employed, unemployed, unemployable, young, old, rich, poor, the list can go on. But here, Jesus shows us something incredible. He calls you by name. It's personal. And I want to show you that our minds should not just go to John 10. I want to show you another passage of scripture that is incredible. Our minds should go to Isaiah 43. Listen to what, what the Lord says in Isaiah 43. So just to, to set the stage here, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to a group of people who are so totally messed up, screwed up, so far gone 
They are so utterly desperate and sinful. And here is what the Lord says about them to them in Isaiah 43. It says this, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And when the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Here we see Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, who has passed through the waters, through the flood, through the fire of death. And he comes out on the other side and he calls you by name. Why? Read down, it's in verse four. Why? It says this, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. There are many ways and many seasons and many feelings we can have when we walk into church on Sunday morning. Maybe it is just confused by our sin, by our past, by our life, whatever it is. Maybe it's just that you just had a really dry week. You have not been in prayer or reading the Bible and you just don't feel very spiritual. You don't feel very right walking in. But do you see this? That as a child of God, you know what he says about you? That you are precious in his eyes. You are honored and you are loved. He says this in verse six. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and be made. You are made for God's glory. You are honored. You are loved. You are precious in his eyes. That is a wonderful truth for us to hold on to. But how? How, how can that be said of us? How can we know that that is said of us? Verse 17 of chapter 20, Jesus tells Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Now, I don't have the exact figure. I wrote it down on a notepad earlier this week as I was studying for this passage, but it's something like 107 times in the Gospel of John, God, Jesus refers to God as my Father. He's my father. Another 67 or 68 times, he refers to God as the father. But there's only one time, there's one time, and it's right here in verse 17, where Jesus calls him your father. My father and your father. Why? Because the resurrection is transformative. It changes you. It changes you and it changes me. For all who believe, our identity is now as sons. Do you see that? We can now call God Father. Let me share with you why this is, is so remarkable. And I believe at times, you know, when we get through seasons of drought or doubt, we get, maybe can get a bit bored with the gospel, and it's maybe just only be human nature because we just think that God's just forgiven me of my sins, but he doesn't really like me or doesn't really love me. He's just given me a get out of hell free card, but it doesn't really change anything the way that I feel now. But let me show you why it should change every way that we think about ourselves and each other now. 
is because we have an eternal new family entering into a new life. John chapter one, he's been preparing us this the whole time. John chapter one, verses 12 through 13. He says this about Jesus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, this is why it's so remarkable. It's because this has been the story of scripture from the beginning. If you stay with me here. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, the Lord appears to Abram, and he says this. He said, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So what is the blessing that the Lord is promising? That through a son, the Lord gives Through a son, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through a son that the Lord gives, all the the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now flip over to Genesis 16. It'll be on your screen. Now just for a frame of reference, 10 years have passed here. It says this, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now notice a few things here. One, the connection to the Garden of Eden, where Sarai is saying, what did the Lord say? Well, the Lord has said that he's gonna bless you with a child, but he has not. He's now maybe barren. She's twisted the words of the Lord. And now, much like Adam in the garden, he listens to the voice of his wife. But here's what happens. The Lord has prevented me. What is Abram going to do? He listens to his wife. And in so listening to his wife, he tries to get the blessing of the son by his own effort. Notice that. The Lord has promised blessing to him through a son that the Lord will provide. But since since there has been no son that the Lord has provided, Abram is going to get the blessing by his own effort. He's going to bring it about. He's going to produce it. He's going to do what God can't or won't. Then Hagar has a son, Ishmael. But Ishmael is not the promised son that God was speaking of. All Abram could do by his own effort is produce the son of a slave. And listen to this, where God comes to Abraham. He says this, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her moreover. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who was 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And listen to what Abraham says. He says to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. What is Abraham saying? 
May the son of my effort live before you. May the work that I produced live before you. May the work that I produced be the blessing that we receive, be the promised son. But all Abraham could do is produce a son of slavery. I think about many weeks, you can ask Jessica, that will in church and you know, it's, it's just a habit. Like you go back through the service in your mind and like how you communicated or how you, you said what you said and you're like, ah, shouldn't have said that or I should have said it this way. And like, you can really spiral out of control quickly if you're not careful. And you can get to this point where you start to think, man, I, I probably should not be a pastor. There are probably people that could do this way better than me. Not only that, you, when you start in this spiral, you start to think, man, I'm, I am not, I'm, I'm, I'm not praying hard enough. I'm not seeking the Lord diligently enough. Uh, I'm, I'm not in the word enough. And we can feel this in our own Christian life, especially when we feel distant from God, where we think, well, if I, if I just clean myself up before God, if I just read the Bible more, if I study more, if I give more, you become a slave to your own effort. You become a slave to your own effort. The message of the gospel of, is this, because you are now sons of the most high God, there is nothing that you can do to receive sonship. There's nothing that you can do to receive God's love. Do you think that there's anything in the world that Russell, Daisy, Jane, or Aubrey can make me love them anymore? Absolutely not. They have my full devotion, my full affection, my full attention, all of my love for them. Why? Because they are mine. They are my children. Now hear the good news of the gospel. For those who have believed in Christ Jesus, you are now children of God, and there is no effort that you could do to make you any more beautiful in his eyes. You are precious, you are honored, you are loved. It's not you could be precious, it's not you will be honored or you might be loved. No, it is the fact and the state of who you are in Christ Jesus as children of God. And the gospel is transformative, the resurrection is transformative in this way because you get to call him Father. And that is the wonderful good news of the gospel. Now I know that this room is represented of a lot of sin, a lot of mistake, and a lot of doubt, a lot of worry, and a lot of wonder. But you can lay them down at the feet of Jesus as you seek him, because he will call you by name. He calls you by name, Isaiah 43, I have called you by name and you are mine. Paul picks up on this theme in Galatians chapter four. If you wanna flip over there, Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven, it'll be on the screen. Listen to how Paul puts it in Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a wonderful truth that we hope in in Christ Jesus. But notice what Paul does here. In the writing 
to the Galatians. He writes this letter in Greek, but he switches up one word here. It's in verse six, it's Abba. Abba is an Aramaic word, and he translates it later for us to father. But why does he switch to the Aramaic? Because at one point in Jesus' life, in the Gospel of Mark, before he goes to the cross, he is in the garden, full of, I just imagine anxiety, the weight of what's about to happen, and he prays out, Abba, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, yet not my will, but your will. You see, Aubrey, she's two, she just turned two. She can't pronounce the word father. But you know what she would be able to say as a baby on her lips? Abba, or like a daddy, dad. What Paul is showing us is not that we have a distant father who is cruel or mean-spirited or just waiting to see if we screw up, No, we have a personal, transformative relationship who are able to say, Dad, Father, he's ours. He's our Father. And this is the good news that Jesus gives to Mary to go and tell the disciples. I am ascending to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Mary, single, former demoniac, woman, outcast, poor, is the first person to proclaim the good news of God, that Jesus is alive and he has made us children of the Most High God. Why I believe this encounter is so impactful, so incredible, is because there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. All you must do is come. What does John say? All to those who have received him, all of those who have believed in him in the will of God. So today, this morning, is this good news? It absolutely is. But if you're still wondering, if you're still struggling, know this, know this about the gospel, that it is believable. It's believable. It gives reason to believe in the makeup of the gospels, the account of the first eyewitnesses, Many people think that Christians just, uh, they just choose to believe and just float around and be happy. No, there is a reason for why we believe. Is this good news? Yeah, it's personal. It meets you right where you are. If Russell, my son, who I love dearly, if, if he left and he left me and he left our family and he went and lived a wild life, do you think my heart is any less towards my son? Absolutely not. And if he ever comes home, do you think, how do you think my heart would be towards him? It would be full of love and joy, just like the prodigal son, because the good news is personal. It's personal because it's transformative. If you're looking at Christianity, start by looking at Jesus' life as it's shown in the Gospels and his resurrection, because it changes everything. The resurrection is the most radical event in human history. It has changed the world, and it can change you.